Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Morris has to get it across. Kim Mulkey, in year two, has orchestrated a turnaround for the ages. LSU has captured its very first national championship. Welcome to Off the Looking Glass. I'm Kate Fagan. I'm Jessica Smetana. Jessica! Woo! Kate! Well, this is the first time I'm seeing you and talking to you in person, but we were on text all afternoon because, yeah. wow. I don't understand what happened to me, Jessica, but I became <laughs> a teary-eyed LSU oh, Tigers you're fan. you a tiger. Yes. Okay. I don't that know. That surprises me. Yes. Actually. I mean, but also it doesn't. There was things to root for on both sides, I think. Yeah. I went into the game kind of leaning toward LSU, but watching them, especially in the first half, and Carson lighting up with 20, I, there was something just That was about, amazing. Hands it off, Carson banks it in. My goodness, it's wizardry. Just her unbridled joy and just pure shock at being inside that moment really connected. You know, I've been working for this my whole life, and you know, it just feels great to finally display it on this stage. I texted you, and I was not exaggerating, I had some tears in the first half for watching LSU just completely celebrate each other and just be overjoyed at the moment they had created. What were you feeling? Can I tell you what I feel right now? Please. I'm really sad. Tell me why. Basketball season's over. This was a really fun basketball season. I mean, I had really high hopes for Notre Dame until they had a bunch of injuries, but I was super invested in the tournament and this was like one of the most fun NCAA tournaments ever and I just am sad that it's over. I don't know what I'm going to watch. I feel like the last four weeks like I have just been in a feverish state of watching ESPN constantly and now I'm like well shoot. The WNBA draft is in like two days so. (laughs) Well don't cry because it's over. Smile because it happened. Okay Jess? That's true. And we've at the very end of that game just before we tee up the extraordinary episode we have, we did have Angel Reese, in my opinion, being amazing and showing mm-hmm. the where the ring would go on her finger right in Caitlin mm-hmm. Clark's face, which to me was like the perfect teaser for season two, which will be yeah. coming next year, probably to Netflix, maybe HBO, we're not sure. But season two of LSU versus Iowa, et cetera, I mean, is perfectly teed up now. It was a great... Final Four in a great national championship game. And I love watching teams win championships. Mm -hmm. And I had no real rooting interest in this game. So for me, I was just along for the ride. And it delivered. Yes. I mean, holy crap, it delivered. Okay, so let's tell people what is on the show today. because Wow, Jess, we are down a rabbit hole. And I think it's the earliest rabbit hole. Have we ever rabbit holed out of the top of the show? Never. This is like we're like two minutes in. This is unprecedented. Unprecedented rabbit hole territory. And we are rabbit holing this early because I took a listen back to the top of the show. And Off the Looking Glass isn't 
necessarily about getting into the day-to-day news coverage or dissecting the topic du jour, but I thought in listening back that the Angel Reese-Caitlin Clark confrontation has spiraled on the national level since we recorded that. And I thought, all right, you know what? Jess and I are going to go back down and maybe offer a little bit more context about what has been happening. Yeah, and it, it this happened because I feel like the worst people on the internet saw something that they didn't understand or maybe just they're just the worst people on the internet and and hated. And so it's either like trolls being trolls, let's ignore them, or it's like, no, this brings up something that women's basketball players, fans, and media, a conversation we've been having for a long time. So let's unpack it and get to the bottom of this. Like, what's really happening right now? Yeah, because a large chunk of people might have only seen a meme about what happened between Angel Reese and Caitlin Clark. Then there's another chunk of people who maybe saw a half of basketball or maybe the full national championship game. I don't think there's a lot of people entering into this conversation who have seen the full breadth of the season, of Caitlin Clark's season, of Angel Reese's season, of the women's college basketball season, let alone the history of the game going back to the 70s and 80s and how this has been a conversation about how we talk about black female athletes in comparison to white female athletes that has existed generationally. But this is the tough thing, Jess. Like, I don't want to be the person who sees this exponential growth of the game. So you've got 5 million more people tuning into this national championship game than the previous season and like policing those people and being like, here, I'm sorry, before you can watch women's college basketball, can you go read these three textbooks and then you're qualified to watch? Like we can't be that way. Yeah. I mean, I don't even, I don't, so that's where I'm like, I don't even know if adding any context, like if you show people, Hey, this is Caitlin Clark did this like a week ago and she's been doing this type of thing the entire season the worst people on the internet are still going to have a problem with Angel Reese doing it. And right. we know why. But I don't want the coverage of this sport to become what we have found and deemed acceptable in other sports that have been mainstream culture for decades. Yeah, and this is all part of what we talk a lot about on Off the Looking Glass. Is like, what does the future of women's sports look like? With growth and money and media coverage, right now it looks like just following in the footsteps of, of men's coverage, which is driven yeah. by memes and (laughs) and basketball Twitter. And like, there's a part of that that does drive our love of sports, but is there, and I don't know that there is, is there a way to like carve out a path where we don't have to deal with the toxic level of it? I don't know that there is. And here we find ourselves because this is what happens when seven extra million people walk through the door. Like not all of them are going to be good faith actors. (laughs) A hundred percent. Like there's a thing I love, which is that we are seeing like sports rivalries be born. We're seeing shit talking. We're seeing you like, love this, some shit talking. I love it. Thing. And we've we've talked about this on the show before because there's like all these stereotypes about women having to be polite and quiet and like, you know, have a certain level of decorum that we don't put on male athletes. And so seeing Caitlin Clark do this all season was fun and I enjoyed it. And now seeing Angel Reese do it back to her is like, well, that's okay for me. And and the yeah. one person I haven't heard say anything bad about it or criticize Angel Reese has been Caitlin Clark. I think everybody knew there was going to be a little trash talk in the entire tournament. It's not just me and Angel. So, um, you know, I don't think she should be criticized at all. So why are all these other people coming into this with these preconceived notions? Like, I think we know the answer. But like you said, it's an existential question because if it becomes more mainstream, then the people that don't actually care about the growth of the sport or about the athletes or about the coaches or about the way that we perceive them 
become louder voices. And that is not probably a good thing. <laughs> and we can't gatekeep that, though. It's just like it's growth equals this in a lot of ways. So, all right, I think we should probably bounce back up. Because yeah. we do have, as I always say, just an extraordinary episode today. We do. But it's not going to be first take for women's sports. We don't want that. Okay, so let's tell people what is on the show today because we're going to have some new voices. First, we're going to be interviewing Machine Gun Molly, known as Molly Bolin when she played, now Molly Kazmer. She is a legend from the 1970s, and she's going to be on the show and tell us stories from Iowa, from the Women's Basketball Professional League. And then, Jess, what do we have? We have our first extra extra from producer Anya Alvarez on the Dust Bowl Girls. So stay tuned to hear that. It's her extra extra debut and the first time you'll be hearing her voice on Off the Looking Glass. Let's do it. Our guest today is a women's basketball pioneer. She was the first player signed to the Women's Basketball Professional League in 1978, signing with the Iowa Cornets for $6,000. In the 1979 to 1980 season, she averaged 32.8 points per game. This could be the record breaker, it is! The blonde bomber, Molly Bolan, a new league record, 54 points here this afternoon. She's a member of the Iowa High School Basketball Hall of Fame. All right, let's do it. Let's bring her on. Machine Gun Molly. Molly Kazmer, nay Bolin. Molly, so I'm interested right off the bat because I had spoken with Karen Logan, one of your former WBLers, who had said that she didn't turn on a WNBA game or a women's basketball game for, I mean, doing the math quickly, over 40 years. Like she just last year watched one again because she had, she just had a difficult relationship with the game. I'm wondering what your relationship with basketball is now. Well, I've always loved the game. And I think anyone that's had any success in it has that. But I totally relate to Karen's feeling because I went through the same thing, especially since I was, involved in a t- five different attempts at women's basketball because I believed in it so much. So when the WNBA sort of took off without me, I was actually working with a company. It was called Liberty Sports, who sold out and became Fox Sports. I was working with the vice president of programming to create a women's pro basketball event or league for cable television. And at the time I was in, I had flown into Dallas to meet with some of the executives. And about that time, the report came out from the WNBA that they were going to start and that kind of ended that. And then I, I wasn't included. So it was really bittersweet. I love seeing the success of it because I always believed in it, but it was really, really hard because I fought so hard for it to happen. And when it did, I wasn't part of it. Yeah. And I think it's been even eye-opening to me as I've been working on a book and like looking at the history of women's basketball. And I'm now questioning why even like using the example of when the WNBA launched in 1997, but had been in planning for a couple of years, we had all this like wealth of knowledge that we could have leaned on from the women who had been a part of just right now, I'm thinking about the WBL and that experience for three seasons. And it's like, it seems like it's a common misstep and not just in women's sports, but in this particular case, 
it feels like it was a missed opportunity to not lean on that wealth of knowledge. I assume that that is that is something many of your contemporaries feel was an oversight in like in the history of women's basketball. Well, you know, what's interesting, Kate, was that they looked at it more as that failure that we don't want to be associated with. Mm. We are new. We're different. We're not going to go back to what they did. But we actually had, especially in year two, came very, very close to being successful. Uh, the second year of the WBL, we had Larry O'Brien, the NBA commissioner, was at our draft. We hired the head of the referees for the NBA to oversee the WBL referees. There were so many overlaps in that year, too. We had three previous NBA coaches or players coaching in the WBL. So we had that relationship going right there. And we were just, we expanded from eight to 14 teams in the second year because all the teams survived the first year of the WBL. I think it really put a boost in there where the NBA took a hard look at us uh, back then, but they realized that the college game hadn't really been developed enough with the fan base to take it from that point. Would you say that when you look back on the WBL and you, you mentioned that season one to two, you went from eight teams to 14 teams. If you had to pinpoint mm-hmm. like a mistake, something that you like growing too fast, spending too much money too soon, like what do you think was the Achilles heel of the WBL? I think the thing that was difficult was the thing that they believed that would make them successful was trying to pattern after the NBA and the NBA had a good 25 years on us when we started. And so the fact that they wanted us to play in arenas, large arenas like Madison Square Garden and double headers with the NBA teams right from the get go. So that was a little difficult. And then we went coast to coast travel. We were, we had teams in New York and New Jersey and also teams in San Francisco and Southern California. And then of course, you know, you didn't have the corporate sponsorship and, and the television coverage. Some of the teams did but not coast to coast, not like it is now. You didn't have the internet. You didn't have, you know, all the cable TV options that we needed back then for that exposure. So basically the only coverage we got was the local news TV stations and, and newspapers and some associated press went national. We had, let's say with the eight teams, four of them were really strong and would have lasted forever. And for that, they were given franchises and they didn't have the finances really to carry it through the season. So I think that was probably the biggest mistake was underfunded teams granted franchises. So earlier today, when my wife was looking at our calendar and she saw that I had an interview with, all it had was like machine gun. That's all it said in the calendar. And she was like, this sounds very violent. And I tried to explain to her (laughs) your nickname. I tried to explain where it came from, although, you know, that was just like a Google search that it did. So can you share with our listeners your nickname, Machine Gun Molly, how it originated? It was one of those things that you get tagged and stuck with and didn't get any say in it. But the first year of the Cornets, we were playing in, I believe it was uh, New York and New Jersey, and a Washington Post writer was writing an Associated Press article. And he saw, I had a tendency to be really streaky with my shots. So if I made two or three in a row and my confidence went way up, I just kept going for it. So when you shoot and make a whole bunch of points in a row, he described me as Machine Gun Molly as a description. Well, of course, the team saw it in WBL and they saw a great chance to capitalize on that from a marketing standpoint. So they took off with it. And I remember going in the office going, wait a minute, you know, I don't want to be a machine gun. Do I get any say in this? But um, and then it kind of got if you can't beat them, join them. 
Okay, so if you are, if you're at a cocktail party and basketball comes up, or you're just trying to explain your place in the history of the game and your relationship to the game, how does that go? Can you kind of give us your own personal explanation of like your basketball career? Okay, well, mostly I don't bring it up. And I think it's happened more and more since we've been involved with our Legends of the Ball. We have a nonprofit organization that promotes the historic and social relevance of the WBL. And since I've been involved with that, it's amazing because we live this history every day. And I think it's important to talk to people and spread the history. And since I've been doing, I did a book and I did a few other things that went out in the media, I get contacted by little kids that are doing reports that want to ask me questions. And I think that's the whole key thing is just to inspire young ones. But getting back to your question, I digress here. I would just say, you know, I was the first player signed in the first women's pro league in the United States. And I'm a pioneer and a trailblazer and proud of it. So you weren't going around just introducing yourself as machine gun. No, no. Oh. I, I, but you know, coming from my Iowa background, small town, I came from a town of 700 people in South Central Iowa, and there's the high school six-on-six basketball was huge there, and it went away pretty much thanks to Title IX in 1993, but coming up in that environment, you're just the humbleness of my background really kept me from being that person, and even though I, as I competed at a higher level, I gained more and more confidence, I always let my game be my talking, it was never a you know, a trash talk or anything like that. I think just the humble beginnings of it. And I just, I'm really proud of the fact that I did come from Iowa six on six and accomplished something that was pretty rare is that transition to the full court five on five game. What was the biggest difference like technically between six on six and five V five? The biggest difference is the six on six game. You only had in Iowa anyway, there was multiple States that played that those rules, but in Iowa, you only got two dribbles. And you only got to play offense. You never crossed half court. You couldn't cross the line. But the key of it was that it was a fast-paced, no-transition game. So after a made basket, the referees would throw the ball to the other end and you would inbound at the center court. So we regularly scored 100 points a game in 32 minutes. So it was it was a fast-paced, high-scoring, very exciting game that packed the gyms every game I played in high school. Tonight, the fans in this vast auditorium will be joined by many thousands more watching on a huge television network reaching into nine Midwest states. So I experienced what it was like to be a celebrity in high school doing interviews after games. I'm from a town of 700 people, but I was interviewed by the local news and four or five newspapers and kids lined up for autographs in high school. And of course, college wasn't quite that way, but when the pro team came about, I was ready for showtime. Woo! Jess, Kate, you know what I love about this rabbit hole is like the wind that's whipping around and the the breeze cutting through the fields. Can you hear that? (laughs) Are we stereotyping Iowa now? Isn't that what Iowa is? Have you ever been to Iowa, Kate? Yes, I've driven through Iowa and I've been to... Des Moines? Is Des Moines where the University of Iowa is? It's in Iowa City, but it's near Des Moines. I've also been to Des Moines. So maybe the stereotype's a little accurate because there are a lot of open fields. My car actually broke down in Iowa once, so I don't have a ton of fond Iowa memories. But Mm -hmm. why are we in this rabbit hole? Let's let's just like let's get away from stereotyping. Let's say some positive things about Iowa, perhaps. I mean, but 
according to our producer Anya, 99% of corn is grown in Iowa. So I feel like the state of Iowa has created this kinship between themselves and corn. It's not our fault, Jess. No, and I love corn. I love corn. It's got the juice. For me, I really like corn. I didn't think when I was in Iowa and I had corn that it was better than other corn, (laughs) but since all of the corn in Iowa is the same as the corn I'm eating elsewhere, it makes more sense to me now. There you go. Okay, all right, why are we in this rabbit hole with the wind whipping? It's because anytime anybody mentions Iowa, like Molly, way up on the surface, did, you and I, we've been talking about Iowa lately, more than just Caitlin Clark. Clark races away, and the mythical mastery of Caitlin Clark continues. We've been talking about the history of the game of basketball in Iowa. Yes, I can't lie and pretend like it's something I knew before we started doing this podcast, but I am so impressed with the more I learn about women's and girls' hoops in Iowa prior to the 21st century. Yes. Let me start by sharing the little anecdote that has been top of mind for me as I have watched this past college basketball season, and then we'll go from there. But first... A story, Jess, which we like to do here on Off the Looking Glass. This is a story set in 1925 at a Presbyterian church in Des Moines, Iowa, where the organization that was overseeing high school athletics at the time in Iowa decided that they no longer wanted to sponsor a girls' basketball tournament in the state of Iowa. And this was Mm. a response to what had been sweeping nationwide, which was a pullback on allowing women specifically to play the game of basketball because it was seen as, you know, unseemly and unladylike, too physical, Mm -hmm. all of those things. So 1925, in the basement of this church, a group of mostly men decides girls basketball, state tournament, we're done. But there were a few men who thought this was a big mistake. And one of them was John W. Agins. And this is a quote that has survived history that Mr. Agin said in this Presbyterian church. Jess, and I'm going to read it for you, okay? Please. He said, gentlemen. Okay, now we know it was men, okay? It was men that were trying to cancel women's basketball because he addresses (laughs) them. Gentlemen, if you attempt to do away with girls basketball in Iowa, you'll be standing at the center of the track when the train runs over you. Ooh. Okay? This is what he said, 1925, and he proceeded to branch away from the rest of the gentlemen and he began and he and his group formed a new governing body and they began sponsoring girls basketball state tournaments from that moment onward and it became the IGHSAU and that was the acronym and that still exists to this day so there was no interruption in the high school state basketball tournaments in Iowa pretty much every other state canceled it for a while but in Iowa because of the John W Agins and his brethren they continued and i think about this moment as we watch Caitlin Clark and Iowa and i just figured out how to pronounce Sinano god i was saying Sizano all year long but it's Sinano <laughs> as we watch them play in front of sold out arenas in Iowa Like, this is not a surprise because this state has supported and that was a state tournament that people were attending in droves all throughout history. Yeah, I also read a really interesting stat, Kate, from the National Endowment for the Humanities. They they wrote an article about Iowa girls sports when they ruled the courts and 
it was that in 1970, 20% of all girls participating in high school sports across the country were in Iowa. That's a crazy high number. Yeah, those corn-eating ladies playing the hoops, you know, (laughs) you know? And Kate, I also read another interesting thing, which was that the six-on-six tournaments that were being held statewide, actually, the last one was played in 1993. You know what else happened in 1993? Iowa Hawkeyes basketball made the Final Four for the first time. Okay, so we've got 1925 Presbyterian Church, John W. Agin standing up for the ladies, 1993 is when the half-court game ends. Iowa made its one and only Final Four until this year. We could actually talk for a while about this, like the end of the half-court game and how long it's taken Iowa and the girls playing in Iowa to embrace and be able to play the full-court game that we play now. But maybe we should go back up to Molly, who actually experienced playing this six-on-six game. What do you think, Jess? Let's do it. I was struck by how many photos and newspaper clippings there were from your high school basketball days because, I mean, there's like, you know, so many photos of you from your entire time as high school and then college and the pros. And I imagine like that could be something that is intimidating when you're in high school, but you you always kind of liked it. And did you know that that was kind of part of growing the game? I think so. And I was just really determined to be the best I could be. So it was including in going to basketball camps every summer, all summer long in high school. It was really focused. Set my goals. I learned how to set goals and pursue them and work hard to achieve them. And I think that was the hardest thing about losing the pro league was just that I was on such a path of success. And every time I set goals, I reached it. I worked hard. And so it was when it was taken away, there was just nothing I could do about it except try to turn the corner and try to find a way to keep it alive or find a way to promote it. So there was quite a a period of time after the pro league folded. I actually went on tour with Nancy Lieberman to promote women's pro basketball. And in 1983 with Martina, as a matter of fact, she loved basketball and traveled with us on that tour. And it was called ladies over America. And we did seven cities just to promote the league and, or the, the viability of women's pro basketball. So I did a lot of things sort of in between. But even though it didn't happen for me and I, and a lot of us just imagine what it might be like playing in the WNBA today, especially from the marketing standpoint, opportunities and, and just the respect and, you know, attention that they get is just incredible. Let's stick on this. You mentioned Nancy Lieberman, not me, but I can't imagine that there's a bigger dichotomy between a trash talking New Yorker <laughs> and a small town Iowa girl. Now, if you tell me you don't want to answer this question, don't worry, we can edit it out. But can you share with us the beef between you and Nancy? Is it is it like, are you guys okay now? Or should I not ask that? Um, no, I don't even know if there's really a beef, really. it's It was just that we were great competitors in the pro league. And she had, we had mutual respect for each other because we battled it out on the court. And then after the pro league folded, we played in three-on-three tournaments together. We actually won a national three-on-three tournament and participated in the men's side of it, almost won the six foot and under three-on-three with with her and, and I and another WBL player. So we had a, a great relationship. When we went to 1984, we played in the USA Olympic All-Star. It was the Olympic tour uh, leading up to the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles. And 
Nancy and I were teammates on that team and hung out together during the training and stuff. And then in the fall of 1984, another league, the WABA, was formed, and we ended up on different teams, so that rivalry came back. Here's Bolin in the drive to the basket. Lieberman gets a hand in there and a knee. And a body. Yeah. And I think and that there was you know, just that rivalry that we had. Okay. Are you guys, do you guys talk a lot now? No. <laughs> Our lives are very different. After the league folded, I wasn't able to stay in basketball as much as I would have liked. I worked with a lot of kids, but basically I went through a custody battle that I took, that I lost in the first round because of my basketball career. They felt that I wasn't a fit mother. And so I took it all the way to the Iowa Supreme Court and reversed the decision. So I spent most of that time period of, you know, raising my son by myself and creating a good life for him. That's why I didn't go overseas and play professionally in Europe. Wait, you, you, you temporarily lost custody of your kid because being a basketball player as a woman was seen as translating to being an unfit mother? Yes, absolutely. I got railroaded in a small court by my hometown and basically they tried to, it's a long story, but they, it was kind of dirty play, but they tried to make it difficult for me financially to continue to fight because I was working construction at the time, right after the league pulled that I took a construction job. So it just went on too long and then everything was ruled in the father's favor. And so I decided I thought I was a better parent. So I fought for him and I took it all the way to Supreme Court. And thankfully I had a, a lawyer that was part of the civil rights union that, that believed in me because a lot of people told me that I had, if I lost the first round, that I wasn't going to win. So that was quite a journey. Well, I'm always like, my mom and I talk about this a lot because she loved sports, but she was born in 55. So she just never was a beneficiary of Title IX. Mm-hmm. And I think that she loved watching my basketball career, but I think she also, there was some jealousy there, not in a negative way, just like in an open and honest way that she didn't get to play. I mean, you were kind of on the, like you had opportunities because you were living in Iowa, whereas like the Northeast, people don't realize that Iowa was actually like a beacon of hope for young girls playing high school sports. And the opposite is true, that New York State was the last state in America to get a state basketball tournament for girls basketball, which seems like the opposite of the politics you would think exists. So I guess my long question is like, what is it like when you know you're, people always use the phrase ahead of their time. When like, when you know that the version of what you loved wasn't mapping on to where society was at the time. It was frustrating, I think, for a lot of people. And for me, coming from that success background with the Iowa high school, Iowa was the only state in this country that has a, a girls' high school athletic union that ruled their sports. And it's been in existence since 1925. But the success of it was basically more for the small schools. There's over 700 small towns in the state of Iowa and the cities did not get to play. The girls did not get to play high school basketball because they're the boys sports took over the facilities. So they just wanted the girls to be recreational in the larger cities. So there was a reason why title nine ended that, but I think there's a certain amount of pride with that because you have to be sort of a, a fighter and a trailblazer to go through things that are difficult and yet believe in, in the end that, it, you know, that'll prevail. And I think just the fact that we see the pro league existing today is 
is incredibly rewarding for all of us who paved the way. The fans rising to their feet. Went through some difficult times, but we loved it. I mean, none of us would change this for anything, that experience. Obviously, I would have loved to have the opportunity to now, but I wouldn't go back. It was just we were the right people at the right time. We were we were a generation of firsts with Title IX, with the AAW, and with the WBL. That was part one of our interview with Machine Gun Molly. We will bring her back next week for part two. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried and true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. When we talk about the history of women's basketball, rarely do we examine the accomplishments of women on the court before 1972, the year of Title IX almost as if the game didn't exist for women before then. Except it did. Basketball was played in every nook and cranny across the country, literally. And the story I'm about to tell you is about an amazing team forced to practice in an attic. That's right. You know the place where your mom keeps all her favorite memorabilia of you? That's where young women in 1932 from drought-stricken plains in the Dust Bowl of Oklahoma honed their skills to become one of the best teams in the country, led by their coach, Sam Babb. He was an educator. He became superintendent of a rural school system in Oklahoma and ran the school system. That was Lydia Reeder author of Dust Bowl Girls, which tells a story of her great-uncle Sam Babb. And this was in the late 1920s, so it was kind of desolate back then, but it was before the Dust Bowl, it was before the Great Depression, and he had a great time. He had the personality of a politician. He loved promoting his school, he loved hiring teachers, he also loved basketball, and he found out that he loved coaching and he saw an opening for a basketball coach at Oklahoma Presbyterian College which was this little girls school in Durant Oklahoma and he got the job 
And this wasn't the first time that Sam would be surrounded by a lot of women. He also grew up with six sisters, so he knew how to talk to girls. He knew they weren't the weaklings that the culture at the time thought they were. Sam was also no stranger to dealing with negative stereotypes of being seen as weak. While in his teens, Sam lost his left leg after protecting his younger brothers from their abusive father. The dreams he initially had of becoming a preacher were crushed after a ministry school wouldn't accept him because they said only a whole man could preach the word of God. His being rejected caused him to change course. The Presbyterian Church ran Oklahoma Presbyterian College. They decided that they would promote women's basketball, so they gave him the opportunity to give financial aid to girls back then, which was completely unheard of. He would travel the rural countryside in Oklahoma in his little Ford Roadster, going to games and scouting out the best players. And then he would visit with their parents and say, I have a team, it's a college, your daughter could get an education, and we would play basketball. Think about it for a second. Many of these families that Sam visited were dirt poor, and it was during the Great Depression when opportunities to advance socioeconomically were non-existent. And going to college, let alone college that was paid for, the offer could have seemed like someone was playing a cruel joke on them. They were shocked. <laughs> They'd never heard anything like it. It was like hearing that he was like handing them the moon. They were kind of shedding the old Victorian age where the primary thought was that a woman's brain was connected to her uterus somehow magically. Um, and that the uterus would fall out of them if they played too hard. Dr. Anna Goldbrath writes that women would find certain men's sports harmful if played by the form in which they are played by the men. In accordance, the Women's Athletic Federation has insisted that girls should play basketball by quarters and should always be played by the girls' rules. So off these young women went, becoming trailblazers when getting sweaty on a basketball court in front of men was not exactly encouraged. At the beginning of the school year, there were 35 recruits that showed up. Oklahoma Presbyterian College only had a half-court gym that was located in the attic, so it was really hot, and they had to sweep up the pigeon poop before they could play. But Sam, being the charismatic and resourceful man that he was, got a local college nearby to let his team use the men's basketball court. The only downside? They could only practice from 4 to 6 a.m. He would also require that they make 100 free throws and run one mile every day. And so some of the girls who showed up decided it wasn't for them. And by the time the season started, there were 16 left. Sam did have a goal, to build a championship-winning team. What he and his players may not have realized at the time, though, was that building a winning team would change the mindset of people in Durant, Oklahoma, of what women were capable of. Some of them didn't even know there was a basketball team. Then the girls started playing and they would win. And it was very exciting, even though it was half-court basketball. And by the time they were halfway through the season, the whole town was behind them. However, 
the press took longer to accept the Cardinals as a real basketball team. They all thought of them as little country girls. But as the season went on, something shifted. The reporters who followed the team kind of fell in love with the girls and just watching them perform. It was very much a surprise when they saw women with that type of athletic ability back then because they didn't think women could do it. They definitely became more newsworthy as they won games, but you know, it was all about how pretty they looked on court and who was the most attractive on the team. A crowd of 3,000 roaring fans watched intently every move as these trim, dashing, and determined girls fought down to the wire. And then they report that they scored this and that. Reporting was very much about how they looked as well as how they played. It soon became impossible to ignore how talented the Cardinals were. Between 1931 and 34, the Cardinals won 89 consecutive games, a record that UConn women's basketball team would later beat with 145 consecutive victories between 1955 and 57. The success in the formation of the Cardinals, though, was all about timing. And according to Lydia, these women may have actually stayed on the farm without the Great Depression. It takes something that drastic to act as a change agent. And their families were enthusiastic because it was a way for them to get out of the kind of the horrors and the poverty that they were living in. A lot of them did have to overcome a lot. And it might be safe to say that these women would have never had the chance for their lives to change if it weren't for the tenacity of their coach. No matter what, he couldn't take no for an answer. And that's how he kind of made it through life. He was not considered a whole person in many areas of the culture. So he kind of understood where the women were coming from and pushed even harder for them. But because he was promoting a women's team, he knew from the start that it would be difficult. But he searched every avenue in order to find a way for them to keep going. Of all the women who played for Sam, none of them went back to the farm. Many became teachers. Some went into coaching. Players like Lucille Thurman went on to become one of the greatest basketball players in the 1930s. And starting forward, Doll Harris had a playground name after her. But their legacy is bigger than what they likely ever anticipated. Their legacy was the idea that women could participate in sportsmanship just like men. They learned how to persevere and how to not take shortcuts. The legacy was in what they went on to do with their lives. But what made me want to write the story was that it all seemed to be lost. When I would ask people, have you, have you heard of the team? Did you know women played? Nobody knew women played basketball then. They were pioneers. And it was just proof on its own that women could do it. Well, Jess, we are lucky to have Anya on our team because she has found some gems from history that you will hear in future episodes, but 
that was her debut and telling us mm-hmm. a story from the Dust Bowl era, 1930s, but women's sports, not a thing you hear a lot about. Oh, hold, hold on. I have dust in my, on my oh, contact. Oh. I know. All right, I got it. Okay. <sighs> Thanks. It Thanks, was, Anya. It was a windy time in history. But it is dusty in here, <laughs> if you know what I mean. All right, we should tell people, because we have had so much on this show today, Jess, that now we just need to wrap it up. We need to stick the landing like Carrie Strug in 1996. What a reference. (laughs) All right, let's do it. Well, first, we should thank Anya for writing the Extra Extra and helping us produce the show. Thank you to you, Kate, for making off the looking glass and also being there for me to text during a national championship game. Because sometimes, and we won't say these things on air, but sometimes you text me very funny things that I'm also thinking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it does make me chuckle. Yes, maybe we will. But they're not for air. Maybe next mailbag. Maybe next mailbag okay, we'll pull okay. some of those out. <laughs> All right, thanks to you for co-producing and co-hosting this show. Thanks to Carl Scott for executive producing this show. Thank you to Machine Gun Molly Kazmer, Nay Bolin, which is a thing I like to say, the nay part, just because it's super sophisticated. So French, yeah. And it just makes me feel really... Um, erudite and saying erudite mm. also makes me feel smart so it's just been like did you just string. read like the divergent novels or something that's <laughs> right that's right all right we should get out of here before i embarrass myself any further we should thank joel first though thank oh. you joel wow the sound designer he sound third. designed all of the dust bowl girls and the entire episode and he does a great job every week so if you like how the show sounds credit to him thanks joel This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.